The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Fariha Roshin, is a multidisciplinary artist, author of the poetry collection How to Cure a Ghost, and author of the novel Like a Bird. Her new book, Who is Wellness For?, An Examination of Wellness Culture and Who It Leaves Behind, is the topic of today's conversation. You can read more about Farina in Spirituality Health Magazine. There's an in-depth interview with Fariha and Stephen Kiesling in the May-June issue of the magazine. Fariha Roshin, welcome to Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you for having me today. It is our pleasure. The book is really fascinating. And I I said we're going to talk about it, and we are, but let me just put it on the back burner for a second, because I wanted to share an observation that I have of you. I don't know you, obviously, but from reading the book, I want to share an admittedly off-the-wall observation. So you identify as a Muslim woman, correct? Yes. Yeah. So let me suggest to you that you are also, in a very profound way, a Jew. Wow. So let me <laughs> So let me send you a dues card. You can so, I've been waiting. So, I've been waiting. There you go. So here's what I here's what I have in mind. So Islam as I understand it means to surrender, to surrender to Allah, to God. And a Muslim is one who does just that. Jews were originally called Yisrael, which means to wrestle with God. And as I was looking at your book, you do a lot of what we Jews call God wrestling. Mm. So I wanted to start the conversation with this question. As a lesbian, where do you fit into Islam? How do you wrestle with your tradition? Wow. So I would self-identify as queer because I'm I'm not just interested in women or femme folks. I do date men. And I mean, I think all of it is sort of uh, interesting for me to live and to live fully. Well, I, I appreciate the, the correction on my language, but the, the, the question yeah, is exactly. still, the same. still the same. As a queer person, how do you handle your, your place in Islam? I think, yeah, it's, I love the idea of wrestling with God. I think it's 
imperative to the act of being human, to the process, the journey of being human. And I think that's such a beautiful sentiment, firstly. And I feel honored to be called a Jew as well as a Muslim. I take both with a lot of responsibility and eagerness and hopefulness. I think I just, I see my relationship to God as a relationship that is, is much like one you would have with a friend, one that you would have with a best of friends, a best of friend. I am in deep yearning and existential longing, yeah, for God. And to me, that is the primary relationship that I have. And so whether I call myself a Muslim or a Jew or, you know, a Sufi, whatever, whatever label I want to call myself. And I I mean, I I also don't want to dismiss the fact that I very much feel like a Muslim. That's not something that I take lightly. And I can go into detail about what that means for me later. But I think that that relationship, that purity of relationship is what I seek. And I, I just so happen to be a Muslim woman in this lifetime. And this, this is the portal with which I am existing in and having a relationship to God. So everything is mercurial in that sense for me. And my primary concern is like how observant I am of that divinity and the sense of divine in my daily life. That to me is what means what it means to be a faith or to be a person of faith, to be a Muslim, even to be more specific. So I don't think that it contends with Islam at all. In fact, there is a lot of literature that also shows that Islam was quite open to homosexuality. I mean, so basically when when the Moors and the Muslims ruled, it was like the golden age of Islam. So yeah, the eighth to the twelfth century. Basically, I mean, it was very open that, you know, homosexuality was very present in Muslim society. And you, you saw it even in the, the rulers. And, and there are many, there's a lot of history about this. I'm, I'm not sort of pulling this out of my ass. It's very, it's very rooted in history and, and, and the historical analysis of Islam, not just from like a queer perspective or like from an alt perspective. I think we just don't talk about it anymore because of the increasing fundamentalization of Islam and that we can also talk about that later. You know, I think that that's a pretty big subject, but there is a reason that, you know, people that were very much a part of the sort of discourse and uh, expansion of Islam, especially the philosophical expansion of Islam from within that era, it, it was it was what I seek and what I see in my life. Now, as a so-called modern Muslim, I actually get so much of my lineage and understanding of what it means to be Muslim from that era of people just trying to question and challenge and understand God and what it means to be human. And desire falls into that as well. Yeah, it's a shame that the Islam that most of us know is such a truncated version of what was so deeply spiritual, so deeply intellectual, so open. I mean, it was open to Judaism, Christianity, but like you said, like a lot of religions, if not all religions, they devolved in the modern era into these competing fundamentalisms 
And it robs the tradition itself. Islam is robbed of the genius of other traditions, and other traditions are robbed of the genius of Islam when we all devolve into these competing fundamentalist camps. Yeah. So it's, but it's, 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 I don't know what the word is. I don't know if it's helpful or I, mean, I can't think of something strong enough, but to be able to go back to a period in your Islamic history and say, that's my Islam, mm-hmm. that's my home, Oof. that has to be very, very rich and comforting. It's so rewarding, you know, because I, I do detest this idea that it's sort of like a new thing that I'm kind of, you know, like repurposing you know, the faith, which I think a lot of people might think like just on first glance, because of, of exactly what you said, you know, our, our relationship to Islam, especially in the last 20, 30, 40 years has become through this very malicious gaze. And it, it's not unfounded. Obviously, there's so much violence in the Muslim world. And I think that for me, the reason I am so adamantly a Muslim is because I feel so protective of my faith. And I'm trying to you know, go back to those archives and release them essentially and be like, no, this is what it means to be a Muslim woman to me. And I'm not, I'm not, and and it's part of the, I guess, the discourse of Islam that, you know, I get to do this because it, the, the first word of the Quran is read. This is a deeply intellectual faith that was really encouraging and asking its people to consistently question and challenge yourself and to, to hope for that, that journey of life and that process of life where you are in constant conversation with God. I think that there's no other beautiful, like, I, I can't think of anything more beautiful than that. Mm. Well, I would love to spend the rest of our time talking about Islam with you because mm-hmm. you have this this wonderful approach to it. But <laughs> I really do want to talk to you about who is wellness for, which is your your new book. So let, let me jump into that. So you write early on in the book, I'm going to quote this to you. Throughout my life, perfection has been my goal. I am in constant evolution, thinking of myself as a video game player hell-bent on winning. I'm not sure what the prize is, but it doesn't matter. I've always found the pursuit of ascension a most honorable quality. This, I have since understood, is a trauma response. So talk to us about this notion of trauma response and how you've how how it connects to this pursuit of ascension. Mm. Yeah, because both can be true. I think it's beautiful to to want to ascend, and I very much am committed to that in my life. At the same time, I think that the idea of exceptionalism, and I think a lot of folks that are immigrants fall into this category of needing to prove ourselves and needing to ascend to such a height that we are impenetrable to society. And that is a trauma response, you know, feeling like you need to be the best, the most perfect and and if not you know you're you're a bad representation of what it means to be Bangladeshi what it means to be Muslim like all of these things I feel those pressures absolutely and I also understand that you know in a capitalist system that's how we value humans we we see their worth through how much they through how hard they work and and that's not again necessarily a bad thing but I think that it does remove divine connection and just sort of the divinity that exists in all of us that we've been denied through this 
again, I guess, fundamentalization of faith, but also I think through the divorcing of self that the capitalist model kind of encourages you to, you know, think of yourself as somebody that deserves objects and, and material gain as opposed to spiritual gain. And, and for me, that also plays into, you know, how much you can prove yourself as a person worthy of a good life. And I see, I think some of the, the, the problems like world hunger and poverty kind of fall into this idea of like, well, these poor countries over there don't really deserve what the wealthy have over here. So we're going to deny them of that. And yeah, I just, I guess that really upsets me on a, on a deep soul level. And I, that's why I, I, I'm challenging that idea. Yeah. So, so you're first generation American? I'm not even American. I'm uh, Australian Canadian, but I've lived here and I've completely lost my accent. I was, but I was born and ra- uh, sorry, I was raised and I was born in Canada and I was raised in Australia. Oh, wow. So I'm not talking to you anymore. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm not American. I, I went. I went to school in Canada. You did. For, oh. yeah, I went to McMaster University for grad school. Amazing. Did you like it? I loved Canada. Yeah. Absolutely loved Canada. So the reason I asked you that. So take the American off. Are, are you first generation Canadian? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your parents mm-hmm. are from Bangladesh. Okay, Bangladesh. So. If I heard you right, and I think this is what you said, that you, you, I don't know if the word is suffer from, but you carry the burden of you have to, you're, you're a representative of an entire, you know, billion people of Islam. Mm-hmm. So do you, you feel the weight of that? Your, your parents sort of raise you, you know, when a Canadian looks at you, Fariha, they, they're going to see Muslims and you have to, Yeah, especially after 9-11, you know, really, I was 11 when it happened. So that really imprinted something major in my psycho, my psychosomatic, you know, like I just, I, I, I knew that it was wrong and bad to be Muslim. I felt that on a, not a cellular level, but a deep level. I was like, this is, this is, this is embarrassing. Like I was always afraid to tell people I was Muslim. I would lie about it. There was a lot of shame, of course. And so, and, and that was, I think, really difficult for my parents and to witness that. But they also really accepted, or at least my father really accepted that that was sort of a part of the process. But yeah, there, there, you know, there was a lot of pressure to just be good and to not ask questions and just to allow authority to do what it needs to do. And even though my father is very alt and leftist and I was raised sort of socialist Marxist, and that's my my political lineage, I, there was a lot of just also like, do what you do, what you're told and, and, and listen. Right. I mean, there's a lot of trauma to just carrying around that burden. Yeah. I'm second generation American. And I still was taught the same thing that Mm -hmm. when you're out in the world, you represent Jews. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. don't screw up. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) I I failed at that. I I failed (laughs) at that desperately. But do your parents consider themselves Muslims? Because I was reading that they are 
I don't know if they are now, but they were both followers of Swami Ramdev. So they're, I mean, it's very hybrid in South Asian culture. Yeah, 100%. They're, they're very much Muslim and they very much see themselves as Muslims. And at the same time, I think, especially for my father, they... They're curious, not not uh, not to convert or to change, but just to to open and to be open to. And and I guess it surprised me that I mean I, I understand the the hybrid nature. I mean I I I have a Hindu teacher and I have Sufi teachers, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. so I understand all that. I guess I was surprised that it was Swami Ramdev because he's a big supporter of Prime Minister Modi and his BJP right. party, which is very Hindu nationalist, not associated with being welcoming to Muslims. Right. Does that come up? Does I mean, how do they handle that? So the, so it was a very long time ago. This I think oh, it was okay. like 15 years ago. So I think, I mean, I haven't heard. It, and it was also just like the, the confusing and difficult part of a lot of Indian, especially now sort of swamis, this wasn't so much what was happening in the ni- early 19th century right, where, right. you know, there was like that sort of oneness and desire for oneness. I think with the BJP and Modi and just the, I think, what's happening with the fundamentalization of Hinduism is that a lot of folks are becoming more radicalized. And yeah, so this was, this was a while ago. This was a long time that, ago, yeah, yeah. Before all that was yeah. happening. But you do have some wonderful critiques of, I don't know, spiritual culture, especially what you call mick mindfulness. I love that that term. I, I've read, I don't know how many, countless books on meditation. And most of the books I've read are free of cultural baggage. I guess I was reading a book last night from a, the Tibetan, a, a Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And it was loaded with Tibetan Buddhist cultural stuff and it was a slog to read through it but most of the books that I'm that I read they've they've jettisoned the cultural baggage mm. and you get what you call mindfulness <laughs> so at the same time though you you also I don't think this is in contradiction but you've got these meditation systems that are trying to strip away the cultural baggage and yet it's a kind of colonialism right it's, it's sort of taking over these other cultural, spiritual traditions and making them, making them over in the image of, I don't know, white Protestant America. Is that right. fair? That's absolutely fair. Yeah. The divorcing and the disconnection from the faith and how I think dangerous that is to decontextualize, because I think this is what radicalizes people too, when they feel invisible and they feel as if their culture is not, you know, again, this is maybe a projection of like me putting this on India, but I wonder if that has something to do with it, the silencing that they feel of Hinduism and the, the need. I know that that's a, definitely a response in Islam. Like you see it in direct conversation. Terrorism is, is in direct conversation with the silencing of Islam and, and the sort of you know, war, the imperial war of America against Muslim nations. So you can't have one without the other, I guess. And and that's something we still haven't figured out. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. 
experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, when I was, I mean, I'm much, much older than you are, but... You know, my exposure to India and, you know, it was at the heyday of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And, and I've been to India four times to study with different teachers and to teach myself. While I was there, I, I had the opportunity to teach Judaism in a number of different settings around, around India. And it, it wasn't it, there, it wasn't like that. And it wasn't yeah. mindfulness. Or maybe maybe there was. But... There was another way of going into these things where you could really immerse yourself in the tradition and not try to make it over in your in your mm-hmm. own image. Mm-hmm. And, and you deal with that in the book when you talk about yoga, what you call the whiteification of yoga. Which you have these great phrases, mindfulness, the whiteification of yoga. So tell us about that. I mean, it's the same thing, right? It's like decontextualizing it from a very, very long lineage of Hindu Vedic scholars considering, you know, again, like what it is to be human in in this human form and how to kind of come to terms with that. I think both meditation and yoga are, are sort of a questioning of that. And, you know, the, the, the consideration, the sort of, the depth that these men were going to and and the ways in which faith played a part in that discovery is so important to me. And I really, really mourn that loss of that information and feel just a, a lot of things that, that, you know, this is of my culture. It's not of my faith, but it's of my culture. And I, as a South Asian person, didn't have access to these worlds until much later because I felt so ugly and ashamed about where I came from. And, and, and that, I think, has a lot to do with sort of, again, the immigration story and coming out of war and coming out of a land that's been deeply colonized and essentially told to hate itself. You know, it's, it's the people... There, it's different growing up as a diaspora kid, but it's still, I mean, there's just so much misinformation about oneself that's sort of like seeped into the cultural lineage. And I mourn that loss of information that ties us to deep, deep knowledge system. And so when now we see yoga and we see all these, you know, rich white folk that are making money. And that's really, for me, the big issue that there, there's so much money in this that is not being 
put back into India, that's not being put back into the very people that this information is coming from, the very people that, as you said, I, and, I, and, I, and I know this because I've been reading like in, in, in the Light of India by Octavio Paz, and I've been reading a lot of just like work that came out sort of from the 50s to the 70s about India. And it was such a different relationship that Indians themselves had to the West because it was a welcoming kind of invitation of like, of course, come, you know, kind of like the Arabs too. It's like very hospitable cultures of people wanting to feed you and wanting to nourish you. And then that information being taken and then profited off of, extracted and profited off of is so dangerous. And it's why we are in this deeply disillusioned society. So let me ask you, let me ask you something. I, I mean, I have an opinion on this, but I'd yeah. like to get yours. <laughs> Do you think, and we'll just stick with, with the white people, because that's how you've, you've phrased it. Do you think white people would have been interested in yoga if yoga were presented, or the same number, if it would be such a big profit center of yoga, if if yoga were presented as the deep spiritual union with the divine practice that it is, or the only way people re- they look at it is it's exercise, it's you know it's it's for health or whatever. Do you think that that Americans are ready for a deeper kind of spirituality that that yoga represents, or is this the best we can do? I think that there is. <clears throat> I think capitalism has taken over as God. And so now we're all devoted ourselves. The energy that you may have devoted to God previously has now been sublimated into something else. And so for me, I think it's more a question of as a society, have we been desensitized that we are actually no longer interested in a spirituality at the extent we possibly once were as a people. And that is... I think the issue. Do I think that people would be as fascinated? No, I don't. <laughs> I think that I think that mindfulness also plays into sort of the optimization of self, which again is kind of dangerous because it's not actually you're not contending with the issue at hand. You're not going deeper than the surface. And you 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 know, how can you optimize a self that is constantly in 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 the 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 transience of knowing oneself like we're all in such a liminal state all of the time and so optimization looks at life just like you know in one direction it doesn't take into account all the other ways that you can exist and the nuance of existing in all the multiple planes that many of us exist in yeah there's no room for that and i think that's probably why we're in this very difficult time because we are refusing to look at ourselves. And, and yoga is just another example of that, the ways in which we profit off of yoga as a society, incapable of being like, oh, maybe we have to be in right relationship with the places that we get this information from. Maybe it's not just about like, how much money can I personally make right. at the expense of you? Yeah. I mean, you're, if I'm hearing you right, I mean, there's the, the capitalist nature corrupts the, the spiritual system, both in its place of origin and where it's been exported or, you know, imported as, you know, like it is in the United States. 
and luckily though, at the same time, the, I don't know about the teachers, cause I'm always a little reticent about, you know, who's, who's authentic, who isn't, but the teachings of the great yogic sages, the great Sufi sages. I mean, you can find all of this stuff in decent English translations if you want to find it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, there is a counter flow maybe mm -hmm. for those, because not everyone wants to go into these things deeply. I mean, most people probably, and this is not a criticism, and just an observation, most people just want to feel better and, and to look better and to deal with the stress in their lives. And, and okay, I'll, I'll live with that. But for those who do want to go deeper, there is, I mean, the books are available and then you can find, I, hopefully you can find authentic teachers to help you go more deeply than, than any book can, can take you. Which brings me back to your book. <laughs> you know, the title is evocative. You know, who is wellness for, as opposed to what's wellness for? Who is wellness mm. for? But then an examination of wellness culture and who it leaves behind. Maybe I should have led with this, but I wanted to close with it so it's, the, it's fresh in people's minds. So, so sort of unpack the title. So who is wellness for and who gets left behind? Oh, yeah. I think the global South gets left behind. I think poor people get left behind. I think the chronically ill, the disabled, the the bodies that are not seen as useful get left behind in the discourse of wellness. And for me, you know, if wellness isn't for the chronically ill, who is it for? If it's not for the poor, who is it for? You know, I, I don't understand this dissonance of believing that individual wellness is enough. I mean, clearly it's not because the violence of the world still exists, no matter how much you, you know, are being mindful, the violence, you still have to go out into the world and exist. And so the, until we get that, that's very significant plot point of, yeah, we're, we're actually in this together and that we actually owe it to each other to be in it with each other, to really see each other as humans and to acknowledge that beauty and, and how significant it is that you and I are talking right now in this moment. I don't want to take those things for granted. I don't believe that we should. I talk about this in the book, but, you know, I, I'm very, I guess, invested in death work. I, I want to be a death doula and I'm sort of beginning my training for that. And one of the reasons that I want to do that is because I actually want to live. I want to learn how to live ardently and responsibly. And it's not, it's not, the, I didn't write the book to sort of finger point, although I really enjoyed those aspects of, of that writing process as well. I very much enjoyed saying everything I needed to say and, and uh, critiquing industries and critiquing capitalism was very enjoyable. At the same time, I wrote it and contend with the questions in the book and especially the idea of who is wellness for because I am invested in living a full life for myself and therefore I want to be invested in living a full life with the people around me and with the community that I'm in and with the larger global world that I'm a part of. I think that that's something that I really like to encourage people to think about as they listen to this podcast. And 
as they read the book, you know, that we are actually so connected and how beautiful that is. And to sort of remember that is a remembrance of the, the ephemerality of being human. And, and we all have to contend with the idea that we will die one day. We will not be here one day. And how special it is to make the most of your life. And why not? Why not try and make the world a better place? I, I know I must sound naive and some people probably feel like I'm being really corny, but it's become this sort of life purpose of just wanting to remind people that, yeah, we all we have is each other on this planet. And to make sense of the senselessness that exists right now, I think caring for people and really moving that, that anger, whatever you're feeling into generosity and reminding yourself that, you know, that in itself feeds you more than any, any object ever could. That's something I want to reinstill back into society. That, that is really beautifully said. I don't think it's naive, or if it is, we need more naivete. <laughs> uh, and I think it's really interesting, though we don't have time to go into it, that you're training to be a death doula to guide someone through their journey of dying. I mean, that's such an important work. You'll have to write something for the magazine about that, and we'll have you back to talk yeah. about it. So one of the things you mention as, as the book comes to a close, Fariha, is you know, that wellness is for true planetary healing. And for me, that includes, and for you too, it, it includes not just humans, but, but all the beings on the earth and the earth herself. And I thought a beautiful way to close our conversation is to have you read the last paragraph of the book. So you can just take us out with that, if you would. I always assumed I didn't have a mother. But now I look back and I realize my mother was this earth. And in moments of tenderness, loneliness, and even awe, she was always there to hold me, to tend to me, to brace me with her grounding. I owe everything to this earth for my survival. The trees are my kin. They listen to me weep. They hear my gratitude as I pray to their roots for patience and grace. All the wisdom that they have taught me. I find great mercy with them, with the eucalyptus and the lilac and the Meyer lemon trees that surround me. They root me through my unrootedness so much that all I can say is thank you. My gratitude for this earth is endless. What a privilege it is to be with her in this lifetime and to have her guidance and care. It's so humbling to be alive and I will never ever stop saying thank you for my life for everything. Thank you. Our guest today, Fariha Roshin, is the author of Who is Wellness For? An Examination of Wellness Culture and Who It Leaves Behind. 
You can learn more about her work at fariaroshin.com, and you can read an interview with her and Stephen Kiesling in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Fariha, thank you so much for being with us on Spirituality and Health podcast. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at SpiritHealthMag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify. 